You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. And welcome to another edition of the Domecast, our weekly look back and ahead at all things in North Carolina government and politics. I'm Andy Curlis with the News and Observer. We've got a good show for you. Ben Brown of The Insider, Lynn Bonner of The News and Observer up. We'll be talking about the departure of a cabinet secretary. And, of course, we'll have later Craig Jarvis of The News and Observer and Patrick Gannon of The Insider. We'll touch on uh, some campaign finance uh, matters. And, of course, we'll have our headliners of the week. One of the biggest stories of the week, of course, was the departure of a cabinet secretary, Aldona Vosh, the Department of Health and Human Services secretary, and uh, Ben Brown of The Insider. Uh, it wasn't a complete surprise, unlike uh, Tony Tata's departure just mm-hmm. the week before. But uh, take us through uh, what it was like. There was a, a he, she got the full treatment. Oh yeah, uh, an, an executive mansion departure. That's right, um, and it was uh, pretty emotional. Uh, the governor cried. The outgoing secretary cried. Uh, saw a few other wet faces. A lot of family present. And I'll say it felt a lot less like a press conference and more like a ceremony. Um, I, I used to cover Coast Guard change of command ceremonies back in the day, and and it, it felt a little more like that. Uh, but, but the governor basically characterized Aldona Vosh as someone who took a lot of heat, even when she wasn't at fault, someone who's sort of a star of the cabinet. Um, of course, the reason given, you know, we always hear from resigning or retiring officials that they want to spend more time with family. She was a little bit more specific with that reason, the family reason. Not saying there aren't other reasons in the mix, but she said, you know, her mother is reaching an age where she really needs some family attention. Um, and that the seven day, 14 hour day work week is interfering with what she really values. Uh, the governor said, you know, he's been preparing for this for about a month and a half or so, and he must have really quickly picked the successor, uh, Rick Brazier, because he told me his recruitment had been in talks uh, and preparations for about the same amount of time. So he was unveiled as the new chief of DHHS, and he'll be reporting to work later this month. I um, think Lynn Bonner can probably go into this a little bit deeper. And Lynn, of course, you were there as well and have covered uh, that agency for quite a while. Right. Her tenure uh how would you describe it? It was a, a rocky road for her. I mean, um, she uh, received a lot of criticism for hiring decisions. She received a lot of heat for software uh, that didn't work well. Um, you know, NC Tracks uh, was unveiled during her tenure, and hospitals and doctors were, you know, in an uproar because they weren't being paid for taking care of Medicaid patients. And of course, when you have doctors uh, and hospitals calling legislators, there were a lot of hearings about, okay, what's wrong with NC tracks and why can't people get paid? And, you know, they were setting up these help desks at the legislative building. It was really, really testy for a while. And then we had NC Fast, which is the public benefits software that didn't work. And that meant that people weren't getting food stamps on time. And there were backlogs to the point that the federal government came in and said, look, you've got to get thousands, these thousands of people who are waiting for, uh, for food. You've got to whittle back this, this backlog or we're going to come down with, uh, financial sanctions. So there were these SWAT teams going out, working overtime and on weekends to try to whittle down these huge, long waiting lists 
so that uh, the federal money didn't get cut off. I mean, it was just kind of a, a steady stream of problems, some of them overlapping, that kept DHHS in the spotlight. Also, there was the issue of her hiring decisions, hiring people in their 20s to substantial and fairly well-paying jobs in her department, um, hiring contractors uh, without going out to bid for some crucial jobs. I mean, for a substantial period, there was a, a contractor that was hired on uh, without bidding that was running the Medicaid finance office. So a lot of, you know, a, a lot of attention on that agency. And, and of course, lawmakers really applied scrutiny to all of this. Yes. Um, you know, she went out on a wave of tears yesterday, but a lot of the, some of the lawmakers who criticized her pretty harshly were seated in the audience, I, I think, to, uh, to see her off and to see the new guy come in. A lot of that is now, you know, kind of papered over, but she, there were some heated confrontations in some of those meetings. And I guess, um, you know, Senator High said she, uh, did the best she could, but there were some differences of opinion on how that agency should be run. And we're seeing that sort of playing out now still with a Senate proposal that would take Medicaid and set up a new Medicaid department. And of course, um, that's unfolding before our eyes, exactly. right? We don't know yeah. exactly how that will we, go. We don't know how that's going to turn out. Um, you know, the new Medicaid director has a lot of business experience, no experience in running a government agency. And uh, North Carolina's uh, DHHS is the state's largest agency. You've got 70,000 employees. But maybe there will be some discussion about having someone come in with business acumen who will take over that large apartment and uh, the huge insurance program that that is Medicaid. It's fair to say it's this agency is has always been a challenge. Always. You know, I used to joke that there aren't um, DHHS secretaries who leave with their reputations intact. Um, it's, <laughs> it's a really difficult thing. And, you know, for every DHHS director, there's been some kind of scrutiny and maybe even a little mini scandal. So it's not an easy division to run. I mean, it's got everything, mental health, Medicaid, all kinds of things. So it's it's multifaceted and, and difficult to rein in. Interesting. So we'll be watching, of course, to see what happens here in the coming uh, period on Medicaid. And I'll tell you what, let's take a break. We will listen to the governor uh, speaking from that press conference this week in Raleigh as Aldona Vosh uh, announced her resignation as DHHS secretary. And then we will be back. Aldona and I had this conversation over a month and a half ago. She pulled me in the hallway back here after one of our long meetings, and we went into almost a closet, and she turned to me and she said, Governor, it's time for me to go home and be with my family. I've been working 14 hours a day, seven days a week, and uh, it's time to reset my priorities. Have you checked out the newly designed News & Observer this week? You'll see changes that make all of our products more visually appealing while giving you in-depth coverage and new ways of storytelling. Visit new.newsobserver.com to learn more about the new ways for your news day. 
As a listener to the Domecast, we have a special offer for you. You can receive the News and Observer Digital Edition for only 99 cents for four weeks. This includes unlimited access to NewsObserver.com, mobile, iPad apps, and the print replica e-edition. Just head over to NewsObserver.com, click subscribe at the top of the page, and enter the promo code DOMECAST to receive this special offer. And we're back on the Domecast, our weekly look back and ahead on things in North Carolina government and politics. I'm Andy Curlis with the News and Observer. We're here now with Craig Jarvis of the News and Observer and Patrick Gannon of the Insider. Wanted to talk a little bit about campaign finances. The reports have all been flowing in over the past, oh, 10 days or so and uh, provide a little bit of a window into where things uh, stand, of course, a lot of outside money is uh, an influence in politics uh, these days. But nonetheless, uh, the big news, as uh, as we briefly mentioned, I think, last week that they were coming in, so we really haven't had a chance to talk about them. Uh, Craig Jarvis, uh, bring us up to speed on uh, where things stand, especially in the governor's race. Well, in the governor's race, Democrats uh, were just jubilant last uh, by uh, last Friday. They... Uh, the money uh, numbers came in, and Roy Cooper, the attorney general, who will be running against the uh, against the incumbent governor, has uh, managed in the first six months of this year to raise $2.2 million, and that's compared with the $1.3 million that the governor raised. Uh, that's a big difference at this early stage, uh, and it's especially unusual because uh, uh, the sitting the sitting candidate is likely to have a little better uh, advantage uh, and would be expected to do better. In fact, somebody told me if things had been reversed and this had been uh, Cooper uh, on top and, and I mean, uh, McCrory on top, Cooper would have gotten a lot of credit for it. So, you know, it's still, it is still early. The governor's people say that he's been out, you know, busy running the government, not campaigning, although that kind of, that line kind of blurs a lot. He's, he's been all over the state promoting his historic preservation uh, plans and that gives him a lot of exposure but uh, another interesting factor is that so far no credible or, or otherwise candidate has emerged to challenge uh, uh, U.S. Senator uh, Richard Burr so if the Democrats really don't have a viable candidate to put money in that race then the thinking is they've already decided to uh, infuse the Cooper campaign with that so we'll see what happens along those lines. And, of course, uh, the Republicans uh, outside of, of the governor's race, uh, uh, Senate leader Phil Berger and House Speaker Tim Moore, I think, combined for about a million dollars. Uh, but on the parties, uh, at the straight party level, the Democrats, I think, also outraised uh, the Republicans. They did, and I don't have those numbers at my fingertip, but it was in real contrast to just a year ago where the state party was really considered somewhat dysfunctional. I mean, the uh, Senate race was being run out of Wake County, not through the state party. And uh, the uh, Democratic Party is seems to be uh, charging at full steam ahead. And it's also still early for, you know, we haven't seen PACs or super PACs. Those those are going to show up at some point and really uh, make it a different ballgame. Patrick Gannon uh, of The Insider, you spend a lot of time looking at campaign finance reports. Tell us... Um, you know, at this stage, it, it, it is a measuring stick. Is that fair? It, it definitely is. This is early. This is the first 
reporting period after the last General Assembly election. So people are just starting to kind of get their campaigns back in order, start raising money a little bit more. The, the bigger numbers will probably come, you know, in the next year or so, six months to a year in terms of, of General Assembly candidates and gubernatorial candidates and the other council state folks. The, the bigger numbers will come a little bit later, probably. Uh, do you have any sense uh, without a Senate uh, uh, candidate, are we seeing where Cooper really benefited from that or are we seeing a strategy of let's uh, on the Democratic side, let's just throw all our money uh, into that race? Um, you know, will this change this trend for Cooper change? Do you have any sense of that? Um, I think there's a little of both of what you said. I think the fact that there's no announced candidate for for uh to challenge senator burr um or at least there's no is there an announced candidate at all no i don't think there's one even announced yeah. Yeah. there's no uh no solid announced candidate if we if there are any announced candidates uh for burr definitely plays into to cooper's hand because you know people are giving to cooper because there's nobody else to give to at, at that kind of a level um so i think you know and i think that'll continue you know at least in the short term Interesting. Uh, you've uh, in plowing through uh, some of the reports. I know you came up with some interesting nuggets. Uh, uh, anything come to mind that? Uh, yeah, one of the most fun things I think is looking through the campaign finance reports when they come in every you know several months. Uh, this year it's every six months uh, because it's an off election year uh, for at least for the for the general assembly candidates. And um, I always like to look at you know. And I encourage the public to do it, too, because they're right there on the State Board of Elections website. And I always like to look at, of course, the total raise, but then also what they're spending their money on. And um, a few interesting things I've, I've encountered so far is one representative um, spent about um, $19,000 on clothing in the first six months of this year. That was Representative Jason Sane of Lincoln County, who's a, one of the senior finance chairmen in the House. Um, uh, most of that money went to a kind of a luxury clothier in Charlotte. Um, Tom Jones company, I think is the name. Um, what else? Uh, you, you know, you see, uh, legislators who like, who obviously like steak because there's a lot of steak house dinners, um, you know, in the, in the hundreds of dollars range. Um, one thing too is to, and that I always think about when I'm looking through the reports is a lot of, uh, legislators do charge food. And it's usually fairly large. It's not 10 bucks or 20 bucks. It's $50, $100, $200, or even more in a lot of cases. And they all get $104 a day in per diem um, while they're in session, which is pretty much, if they choose to take it, seven days a week, you know, for this year at least six or seven months. And yet they're spending campaign money um, like crazy on food and, and things like that. There's probably nothing illegal about it. It's just, it's just a little bit fishy. They're definitely, you know, padding their their income uh. well and and to be clear i think uh on using campaign money for personal expenses it is a you know a, a, an area that that has been explored over the years of course senator uh, fletcher hartzell dealing with this so uh, with the state board earlier this year the rules basically say if um the expense is connected to their service and office then it's allowed the, the test they ask they ask legislators to to give themselves is if you were not a candidate for office or elected to office would you have this expense anyway and if the answer is yes then 
you probably shouldn't be spending campaign money on it. So, for example, in the Hartzell case, an issue came up where um, he spent money on, I think it was a driver's license renewal or registration renewal for his car. So the question came up at his hearing, if you weren't in the legislature, would you be driving a car? And his attorney actually um, questioned whether or not that'd be the case. If he wasn't in the legislature, maybe he'd be at home and wouldn't need the use of a car, which you can debate or, or whatever. But so it's it's things like that. Um, food is is another one too. I mean, you you've got to eat if you're not um, in the legislature. But a, a lot of legislators do use their spending accounts for food or their campaign accounts for food. Interesting. And so those reports, uh, folks, if you, if you are looking for them, they're pretty easy to get to at the state board of elections in North Carolina. And uh, like Pat said, we do encourage uh, the public to to look at those records. They belong to the public. Uh, Let's take a break, and we'll be back with our headliners of the week. So you smash your thumb with a hammer. Ouch! You race to the hospital. And they ask, what medications are you taking? Thankfully, in your wallet is a list with your medications on it. Wife went to safemedication.com, downloaded the free template, and wow, that pink pill has a real name. To create your own medication list, visit safemedication.com or talk with your hospital pharmacist. Brought to you by the American Society of Health System Pharmacists. And we're back on the Domecast. Time for our headliners of the week, where we have each of our panelists mention someone, nominate someone, if you will, uh, argue for why they should be the headliner of the week, and then we sort of pick somebody, have have a little bit of fun with it. And so let's start with looking around here. How about Craig Jarvis? Craig Jarvis of the News and Observer. Tell us, who is your headliner of the week? Well, I'm going to go with the Attorney General, Roy Cooper. That was a huge fundraising effort the first half of this year. Uh, it surprised a lot of people how much it was. Uh, it could have the McCrory camp in a little bit of, if not panic, maybe concern, I would think. And uh, the Attorney General has kind of had a low profile. He hasn't officially announced the campaign, although that's it's a foregone conclusion. He just hasn't been in the headlines politically too much lately. Uh, this is kind of his first step into that. Limelight, I think. So Roy Cooper, a nominee for Headliner of the Week. Let's go now to Patrick Gannon of The Insider. Tell us, who is your Headliner of the Week? I'm going to go with Representative Mickey Michaud from uh, Durham. He's a Durham Democrat. I think he's the longest-serving member in in either chamber. Uh, Been there for decades. he uh, stood up on the floor today, Today, today's Thursday, as we're taping this, to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act, which he's, he's long been, been known as a kind of a civil rights advocate. And so he stood up on the floor today and spoke for about, I think it was about eight minutes on the importance of the Voting Rights Act, you know, what it means today, what it means to him, you know, as somebody who lived through that time. And after about eight minutes, he was gaveled down by House Speaker Tim Moore, and told that his time was up. He was standing during what they call a moment of personal privilege, which is supposed to be limited to three minutes. The speaker gave him eight. He then he then uh, cited a, a kind of an obscure constitutional provision that and, and tried to get uh, the speaker to allow him to continue. And then, uh, long story short, another representative stood up and said, "Let's just waive the rules for right now. Let him finish his uh, speech and uh, and move on." And they did. And he finished his speech. And and that was it. Re- Representative Michaud. So Mickey Michaud. 
uh, for the record, I did not ring the bell because I don't think I could gavel down. Uh, <laughs> I didn't want to gavel you down when you were talking about somebody being gaveled down. So they did not get to ring the bell. But Mickey Michaud, representative from Durham, a Democrat, a nominee for headliner of the week. Let's go now to Lynn Bonner of the News and Observer. Tell us, who is your headliner of the week? I'm going to pick uh, Rick Brazier, who's the new head of DHHS. Um, he comes in with an interesting background, was an officer at a Fortune 500 company, something I don't think we've seen before at DHHS. So he's going to bring an interesting perspective, um, interesting views, and he's coming in at a crucial time uh, where legislators are deciding the future of Medicaid and the department. Rick Brazier, someone who we really uh, don't know a whole lot about, uh, just sort of a sketched out biography. So uh, Rick Brazier, the new secretary, in as a nominee for Headliner of the Week. And let's go now to Ben Brown of The Insider. Tell us, who is your Headliner of the Week? I'll go with Representative Dean Arp. Uh, who had more time on the microphone than usual. Uh, he was the presenter of the House bond plan, which got a really interesting debate that wasn't straight down the aisle. You had Republicans, for instance, for it and against it, and it always sort of went back to ARP as the anchor for the plan, and it got through, on the House side at least, so Dean ARP. Dean ARP, uh, shepherding, so that would be the uh, the, the latest uh, bond proposal. That's right. A house uh, uh, close to $3 billion, most of it in buildings and mm-hmm. That sort of infrastructure sure. went through the House uh, this week with a vote at the end for a march. I'm seeing 76 to 29 on the website. 76 votes in the final uh, vote, final mm-hmm. tally. Okay. It'd be, and, and if it clears the Senate, it would be a march vote. Is that right? Please. Yeah. Okay, good. So let's go ahead and pick somebody, and we'll turn the handle here. And I think the headliner is going to be Rick Brazier. Uh, a name that really was unknown uh, in a lot of circles in Raleigh until uh, literally he was standing there next to the governor as Aldona Vosh said uh, farewell. And so we'll grab a little bit of audio from uh, Rick Brazier as we head out. We thank you for listening, and we will see you soon. Our administration's emphasis continues to be both on people first, meaning ensuring that we're focusing on the whole person, health outcomes at a lower cost. From a structure standpoint, we continue to believe that really a provider-led approach is really should receive the first opportunity. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.